Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we are delighted to have all of you here tonight for a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. It's also uh, special because we have people joining us with live streaming video on the internet, and I am now supposed to wave to the people in the ether, and that, that makes it really special as well. Um, for all of you who've checked your friend requests, updated your status, and even played Mafia Wars on Facebook today, or in the case of many of you several times today, we definitely have an author for you. We're very excited to have here in Baltimore and at the Pratt Library the best-selling author, Ben Misery. Now, you can imagine that his appearance here at the Central Library has generated a lot of buzz from Twitter and, of course, on Facebook. And we're that, we know that many of you are tweeting and updating your statuses right now this evening as we progress. So we hope that you will continue to help us have a buzz and spread the word about the Pratt Library because we are proud that the Pratt has become one of the IT destinations in Baltimore for prize-winning and award-winning and best-selling authors. From Pulitzer Prize winners like Juno Diaz and Annette Gordon-Reed to best-selling phenomenons like Chuck Palahniuk and Michael Pollan, we've been able to host them all. And this fall, we have a great lineup coming up with New York Times columnist Frank Rich, CBS News correspondent Brian Pitts, and actor and activist Mike Farrell. So we hope that you can join us, and we are excited about your support. I want to just remind you and let you know, if you hadn't had a chance, that Breathe Books of Hamden is here selling copies of Accidental Billionaires, and we hope that you will get your copy because you will have an opportunity to have your book signed. Now I'd like to call on Kate Powell, who would like to invite all of you to an exciting new group here at the Pratt Library. Thank you, Dr. Hayden, for that introduction. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm Kate Powell. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I've been told I can only talk for two minutes. And let me tell you, I can go on and on and on about how wonderful the Pratt Library is and how young people can become supporters. So I've got about a, a minute and 40 seconds left. But um, the, the Pratt Contemporaries is a really fun group, and I would want all of you um, to become members tonight if you're interested. Um, I think the demographics of um, the, the folks that are interested in, in Ben's book are really our target audience. Um, we're a group of young, fun, um, intellectual um, individuals who um, like to get together and, and support the library. Um, it's very easy to do so. You can uh, become a member for just $40, um, but we'll take more. We'll take $125 or $500, but, um, but for $40, you get to be on our list of exclusive events here at the library and with some of our partnered, um, partnering institutions around Baltimore City. Um, I've been really excited as we've got, you know, started to get this group off the ground. And Chris Espenshade is my co-chair. She's here somewhere in the room. Um, 
that just the energy and excitement of young people uh, recently to um, make a difference in their community, this is a really easy way to do so. And you get to meet people, have fun, network a little bit um, here and, at, you know, all at the same time. So um, at, on your way out, um, you can stop at the, red, uh, at the red table, sign up to become a member, again, for as little as $40. Sign up to get uh, two tickets, to, uh, free tickets to see Frank Rich, uh, who will be speaking here in, in uh, November, um, and we invite everyone to, you know, to, it's a great way to make a difference, to support a great institution, and we hope that um, you do all uh, to sign up and, and become members for us. Um, my other task up here is to, um, I have two other tasks. The first is to thank our sponsors for tonight. The Pratt Contemporaries had a reception with Ben Mesrick and his family downstairs. I want to just um, give a shout-out to our uh, sponsors. Urbanite Magazine has been a fabulous media sponsor for us for the past couple of years, and Chef's Expressions and, bon and Bonterra Wine catered our event for us. So thank you very much. If you're looking to host an event, they are fabulous, um, fabulous people to work with. Um, now, without further ado, I just want to I want to introduce um, Aaron Henkin. If you're as, as much of a uh, public radio uh, dork, I guess, as I am, then he really needs no introduction. Um, Aaron is uh, works at our local NPR station here in Baltimore, WYPR. Um, he uh, is the host of um, Tapestry of the Times. He's also co-creator and producer of YPR's The Signal. And he's a regular contributor to uh, national programs on NPR, like Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Um, and he is going to be introducing Ben for us tonight. So without further ado, I'd like to bring Aaron Hinken up. Thank you very much, everybody. That's what this evening is all about, dorks. We'll be hearing a lot more about dorks this evening. Um, so uh, how many folks are on Facebook? Uh, uh, how many folks are not on Facebook? I confess I'm not, not either. So, um, so I'm gonna, I'll do a little intro here at the podium, and then uh, I'll come sit, sit down. Feel good? Okay. Um, so here's what you want. If, uh, if you happen to be a young, awkward uh, math whiz or like a college-aged uh, computer geek who's kind of antisocial, what you want to have happen is for Ben Mesrick to come knocking on your door. Um, this, this will mean a couple of things for you. Um, first off, it, it will be a confirmation that you have uh, become incredibly rich all of a sudden in some in, in ingeniously nerdy way. Uh, number two, it will also mean that uh, you, you've, you've transcended that nerdiness somehow and managed to score with like a Victoria's Secret model or a sexy co-ed. And uh, number three, um, it will mean that uh, a, a best-selling book is about to be written about your life and that probably before long you'll be uh, watching uh, actors portray you uh, on the silver screen with uh, Kevin Spacey somewhere in the frame. So um, his, uh, Ben's book, Bringing Down the House, the inside story of six MIT students who took... Vegas for Millions, became the hit movie 21, and just last week, his brand new narrative nonfiction book hit the shelves. It's called The Accidental Billionaires, The Founding of Facebook, A Tale of Sex, Money, Genius, and Betrayal. Let's give a hand to Ben Mesrick. Thank you very much. So let's check these things out here. 
Can you? Hello. Hello. There we go. So far, so good. Hey, so thank you very much. That was a, a really good intro, and uh, I uh, love NPR and I love public radio. So it's awesome to have you. Well, it's it's a pleasure. Great to make your acquaintance. Um, so, uh, first question is: it, Is it really true that you once taped two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to yourself and went through an airport uh, yeah, security um, checkpoint? Well, it wasn't all taped. Some of it was in pockets. This was before 9-11, and when I started to write Bring It Down the House, I started traveling every weekend with the MIT Blackjack team. So I used to be the donkey boy, as they called it in the movie, um, because I'm really bad at math. <laughs> so I couldn't actually be a card counter. I was the, carried the money. So you used to put a quarter million dollars on your body. Um, and back before 9-11, you could go through the airport, and you didn't have to take your jacket off. Um, and they didn't really pat you down. And you could actually put $10,000 in a hat. Um, but we would do that, and then you'd get to the, the, the airport, and you would trade it under the stalls and spread it out across the team. But I did do that. I actually also once, uh, I shouldn't, my parents are here, and I feel that they're going to not like this story, but I actually once put $60,000 uh, in a duffel bag and took a bus um, because I was writing a book called The Carrier, which none of you have heard of way back when I used to write fiction, and the character fills a, a duffel bag with cash and goes across the country. And I wanted, my plan was to take a bus across the country, but I made it um, <laughs> about, about a day on the bus. <laughs> and then I decided uh, I was going to turn around, because it's scary when you have a big duffel bag full of money with you on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> but I do immerse myself in the stories, yes. And, and so for this book, you did an equally uh, hair-raising stunt. You, you signed up for Facebook. <laughs> I did, you're right. Um, I was actually already on Facebook. I've always been a Facebook fan. My wife is obsessed with Facebook, and she puts hundreds of pictures up and invites, she has 300 and something friends on Facebook, and uh, I was using it every day, um, but uh, I did, uh, you know, it was, it was something that I was already familiar with. So was it your fascination with Facebook that led you to this story, or was it your fascination with the, this sort of young, genius, <laughs> billionaire mindset? Well, you know what, this, be- this story actually came by accident to me. I, I wasn't out to seek a story about Facebook. I was sitting at home, and two in the morning, I got an email to my website, and this kid, uh, a Harvard senior, said, you know, my best friend co-founded Facebook, and, and, uh, and nobody knows who he is. And I had heard of Mark Zuckerberg, who is the guy who runs Facebook. Um, so I went and met this kid for a drink in Boston, and, uh, and he had this incredible story to tell. He was an angry, upset kid. His name is Eduardo, and he's the main character in the book. And he had co-founded Facebook with his best friend and then had been kicked out of Facebook, or at least that's what he felt. Um, and he wanted to tell his story. And that's where it started for me. I wasn't out to write a story about Facebook. I kind of just got sucked into it. Well, um, we're going to hear more about Eduardo a little bit down the road here, but take us back five, five and a half years now to um, that sort of drunken, sexually frustrated night that this ki- one kid was having in a Harvard oh, I thought you were talking about room. me. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, Mark Zuckerberg was, you know, a geeky kid, um, brilliant hacker, brilliant computer programmer, but wasn't part of the in crowd at Harvard. And one night after a bad date, he was in his, his dorm room drinking some beers, and he hacked into the computer systems at Harvard. And he pulled up photos of every girl on campus, and he made a hot or not website where you could vote on who the hottest girl at Harvard was. And uh, it ended up crashing all the servers at Harvard, and he nearly got kicked out of school. And basically, shortly after that, he came up with Facebook, because he thought if people could put their own pictures up, uh, I won't get in trouble, and maybe everyone will do it. So it really started with a college prank. And... 
tell us a little bit more about the personality of Mark Zuckerberg, as you've come to understand it through other sources, right. not generally the most socially successful kid. No. You know, I, I, I think Mark is, is a genius, and I'm a big fan of Mark, so he shouldn't be so terrified of me. But um, I actually think he's a brilliant kid. He's socially awkward. He's a little bit different. Um, back in college, he always wore, you know, his flip-flops and his shorts, cargo shorts, and, you know, he, he's, a, he's a kid who's a little bit different. And what's amazing about him also is he doesn't care about money. He's the youngest billionaire in the world, and he doesn't care about money. When he was 17 in high school, he had created an, an MP3 player add-on, a piece of software. And uh, Microsoft came to him and offered him more than a million dollars, and he just turned it down. No reason given, just said no thanks, and put it up on the web for free. And that's Mark Zuckerberg. And so now that he runs this multi-billion dollar company, no one can figure out why he keeps turning down offers, but he doesn't care about money, which is very admirable. I mean, I would have probably sold out the first chance I had, you know, but he, uh, he's one of those kids who just is this computer hacker and believes in that, that sort of philosophy of, of building something great that isn't about money. And that's not to take away from the fact that he is very, very singularly focused yes. on the success of this Right. Entity. I mean, at people the cost have, of right. friendships. At the cost of he else. sheds friendships along the ways. I mean, if you look at the history of Facebook, so many people have left um, and, and they keep leaving um, because Mark doesn't think about people essentially the same way everyone else does. He's his best friend is his computer. I mean, that's what I've learned. You know, that's what I believe based on all the sources I have. Um, but uh, you know, he's he's a little different, but he's definitely incredibly driven. Nonetheless, he did. Um have a somewhat of a meaningful friendship uh, in, during those college years with Eduardo. Yes, Samurai. I mean, Eduardo believes that Mark and he were best friends. Mm -hmm. They met in an underground Jewish fraternity. They were both trying to get into one of the finals clubs at Harvard, which are these semi-secret fraternal organizations that date back 300 years. If you're a member of a finals club, you're kind of in the in crowd. Eduardo did manage to get into one of the finals clubs, and Mark did not. Um, but they were best friends, yeah. And during that... Um, those early years, that friendship resulted in the partnership you were referring to, yeah. which sort of uh, where a, a very preliminary split for the Facebook, as it was called at that point, was arranged because Eduardo lent right. Mark $1,000 to get right. this thing started. Right. Eduardo had money um, because over the summer he had made $300,000 trading uh, oil futures because he was obsessed with weather patterns. These were really geeky kids, let's just put it that way. Um, so when Mark had this idea, he came to his friend Eduardo and said, I want to build this site, but I don't have any money. And so Eduardo put up $1,000, and Mark said, you'll have 30%, I'll have 70%. There were no papers signed. These were naive college kids. They weren't even thinking of this business. They were just saying, this is the company, you'll have 30, I'll have 70. And, uh, you know, fast forward a couple years later, and it's a multi-billion dollar company, and Eduardo says, where's my 30%? Um, so a lot happened in between, and that's what the book is about. Right. These, these, the first part of the story is really kind of a fun, relatively innocent sort of rags-to-riches uh, thrill ride for right. these two young guys. They sort of all of a sudden get some fame and notoriety. They watch the numbers of the Facebook, which is originally a closed college collegiate Right. Uh, social network for Harvard, right. and then on to a couple of other elite universities, and from there on. Yeah. And um, so we, you know, you've got uh, genius, sex, money, and betrayal in your subtitle. We, so far, we've covered the genius. Right. Then genius. they uh, they they uh, have some they have some sex, romantic trysts, yes. and uh, with coeds. Right. And then comes the money and the betrayal, and the two guys 
split ways it, geographically, right. and that's where things start to go wrong for them. Right. Well, Mark heads off to California to build the company, and Eduardo stays behind basically and finishes school. And uh, basically, Mark sheds Eduardo. There's another kid who comes into play whose name is Sean Parker, and he's like the bad boy of Silicon Valley. He's kind of like a rock star. He's the guy who co-founded Napster with Sean Fanning and then founded Plaxo, never went to college, dropped out of high school, and he discovers Facebook on a friend's, web, uh, on a friend's computer, basically hunts down Mark and says, you know, I want to take you to the next level. They run into each other in California, and Sean takes Mark into that world. And they don't need Eduardo anymore. And so he feels like he was betrayed there. And in effect, um, they maneuver to sort of peripheralize him. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, what happens to Sean Parker? Well, Sean Parker becomes president of Facebook and then gets caught at a party with cocaine and a bunch of undergrads um, and, uh, and gets, uh, has to... Well, he gets arrested and then he can't be president of Facebook anymore. And, um, <laughs> You know, in Sean's point of view, he was set up at this party, and that's in the book. I'm very kind of mysterious about what really happens there because nobody really knows what happens there. But he believes there were venture capitalists who didn't want him running Facebook anymore. On the other hand, maybe he was just at a party with cocaine. So, you know, it's up to people reading it to decide. Not a good career move, no matter what industry. Well, I think that you know, a lot of people say, "Be careful with Facebook because your bosses might look at what you put." Um, also be careful if you're running Facebook because <laughs> your bosses might look at what you're doing. Now, um, so far as the research that you did for this book, there's, there's sort of an elephant in the room here, oh, and yeah. um, that's that you never got to interview Mark Zuckerberg no. himself. I spent about a year trying to interview Mark Zuckerberg, and it was kind of like waiting for Godot. It was this continuous process of almost interviewing Mark, and he almost said yes a number of times. And, you know, and the bottom line is, at the end, Facebook was nervous, uh, kind of afraid of what I might write. Um, they, they thought that I, I was going to talk about... There's another story in this book that we haven't really gotten to where there's these two other kids, the Winklevoss twins, who are six-foot-five Olympic rowers, they were the cool kids on campus. They were the seniors. They're identical. They row together in a boat. It's actually pretty spectacular. Um, and they had this dating website called the Harvard Connection. It was, you know, it was more than a dating site, but it really that was the kernel of it. After Mark had done that prank and gotten in trouble, they had seen him in the paper and decided they needed him as their geek to do their computer programming. So they had brought Mark in to work with them. He had blown them off and then launched Facebook. So they believed that was their company, that he had stolen their idea. So Facebook was terrified that this book was going to be the Winklevoss twins' book, um, which it isn't. I think they're interesting characters, and I think it's a very interesting story. They did have a lawsuit. There was a big settlement. So there was something to their story. But, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Mark and Facebook, so he shouldn't have been so afraid. Uh, But in the end, he didn't want to talk to me. Um, So I built the story from a lot of other sources, not just Eduardo, but numerous people who are in the book and around the book. And then I have thousands of pages of court documents. There's been multiple lawsuits, so many depositions, that every scene in this book, there is a court page about what happened in that scene. But I do get attacked, and, and it's something that I you know, accept. I write a form of journalism that uh, there are some journalists that don't like. Um, I take all this information, and I write it in a narrative thriller-esque style. Um, so I write it in a cinematic way, um, but it's all true. And, and anybody who read the book who was in it would sit down and say, yeah, this is what happened. Do you have any idea if 
any of the principals in this story have read the book, Eduardo? Or um, you know what, Eduardo stopped talking to me halfway into the book. Um, one of the risks of writing this sort of nonfiction is people get really nervous, and he got nervous. He was in the midst of a lawsuit with Mark. Um, Mark figured out that he was talking to me. I don't know what happened there. I do know that a month before the book came out, Eduardo was reinstated as co-founder of Facebook, uh, having been cut off from Facebook for five years. So he should love me, to be honest. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know what he thinks. I, I don't know what Mark thinks. Facebook sent out a statement to every press stop that I'm doing that says Ben Mesrick is the Jackie Collins or Daniel Steele of Silicon Valley. <laughs> Um, which is great. I mean, listen, they're great writers in their own way. Um, so they're not thrilled about the book, I don't think. But that, that statement came out before they read it, so who knows. Um, but uh, I don't know what anybody else thinks of the book yet, no. You should blurb that for the paperback. I know, put it on the paperback. Version of the... Jackie Collins to write a blurb or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it really is interesting, this, uh, if not polarizing uh, method that, that you've got of dramatizing these non fiction yeah. events. Um, and I wonder if you ever find yourself torn between these two twin masters of uh, journalistic uh, uh, truth and uh, attention to all of the uh, detail versus your uh, service to your readers who you want to have a sort of a, a thrill ride of a right. reading experience. I mean, there are scenes, there are a lot of scenes in this book that where you literally say, you can imagine... Right. There are certain scenes in the book where I had a lot of information, but I don't really know what happened there. So rather than, you know, just not write the scene at all, what I do is I say, this is what I think happened here. You can imagine that this happened. Oh, this is probably what happened. I've always been extremely open about my methodology. It's right in the author's note. You know, I say, this is what I'm going to do here. And, and you can read the book knowing that. If I were to write an article for the New York Times about this story it would have been very different. And, and that's not what I do. What I do is I take the facts and I turn it into a thriller. And that's what my readers like. And that's what they expect and they understand. As long as you're completely open about your methodology, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's a legitimate form of nonfiction that dates back you know, many years. There's been new journalism. There's been a lot of writers who've written like this. Um, I get attacked because it's very pop, um, because it, it, it turns into big movies, and, uh, and because you know, it's a fun story. Bloggers love this story. Um, and I love it too. It's fun. Um, but, you know, nobody in this book will say it's not true. They'll say you're Jackie Collins. But the reality is when they sit down with it, if they weren't surrounded by their flax and their lawyers, they would say this is what happened. You mentioned this uh, tradition of narrative nonfiction writers. I wonder who you enjoy reading and who you've taken your cues from. Well, I mean, listen, I, I, I enjoy reading a lot of different types of authors, both fiction and nonfiction. I think, uh, you know, Michael Lewis is a phenomenal writer who writes narrative nonfiction. Uh, Sebastian Younger's The Perfect Storm. Everything took place on a boat that sank, right? Everybody on that boat died. Um, and it's a wonderful, true story. Um, I think uh, you can go back to Hunter S. Thompson, who, who went beyond, uh, obviously. But, you know, I feel like I've always wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson without the guns and suicide. But, um, you know, phenomenal writer. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a bunch of great writers. Tom Wolfe. Uh, you could go back uh, a, a long way. Um, and then I also love, you know, a lot of current writers, uh, all sorts of writers. So. And I wonder about this. Um, it seems like you're... you're honing in on a certain profile of a subject for your books. Yes. And, uh, you know, 
And I wonder what your fascination is with these young outsider geniuses that, right. that you gravitate to. Well, I was, you can tell, looking at me, I was a pretty geeky kid in college. Um, and, uh, you know, I was one of these geeky kids sitting in a dorm room, and I didn't come up with Facebook, sadly. But um, I live vicariously through the people I write about, these young kids who have too much money, who've done something crazy. None of them are criminals. I don't write about criminals. I write about people right on that edge, in that gray area, who use their genius to kind of get out of where they are from their sort of geeky past and become these rock stars. And much like bringing down the house, you have two geeky kids here who became rock stars. You know, they became the guys who created Facebook. And uh, I'm fascinated by that. I always have been. Was... It's also more fun to hang out with kids with Ferraris than it is to, say, hang out with a guy who spent 12 years in jail. So I do, you know, <laughs> I do enjoy my research process, too. Um... And, you know, I was, I was talking with your dad, actually, um, about uh, the Uh-oh. point in time when, <laughs> this when go anywhere. <laughs> you sort of announced to him that, that you were going to be a writer. And, uh, and he said, uh, well, that's good. What are you going to do for a living? Um, <laughs> he said that about, for about four years after I became a writer, actually. But, um, yeah, writing is a tough business. I know, you know, some of you might be interested, or some of you are probably already doing it. And it's a tough, tough world. Um, you know, getting a book published is one thing, and then getting... A successful book, and then it's a business. It, it very much is a business, and, and parents don't necessarily love to hear their kid come out of college and say, especially my whole family is doctors, and, you know, half of them are here, and lawyers, doctors and lawyers, and I wanted to be the writer. Um, and to this day, I'm the least educated in my entire family because <laughs> they all went to graduate school. But um, it's, it's tough, but it's also something that you, you, know, you love. And, and my dad also had a rule when we were young that we had to read two books a week before we were allowed to watch TV. And I was obsessed with television. So I became very fast at reading. And that created my love for books. And so I became a writer um, because of him, and, too. So he gets the blame for that as well. <laughs> and now, ironically, your, uh, your books are ending up in the, uh, not on TV, but in movies. Yeah, I did have a book end up on TV, too. But if you ever see this movie, Fatal Error, turn off the TV because it's really bad. But, um, yeah, my books do go to Hollywood. Kevin Spacey has become one of my first readers, which has been this incredible gift in a way. Um, When I finish a book, I send it to him, and he decides whether he wants to produce it. He found Bringing Down the House. He had read an article I'd written in Wired, called me up out of the blue and said, I want to make a movie out of your books. Um, So, yes, I do write knowing that there's a good chance, and this one is going to be a big movie. Um, Kevin Spacey's producing with Scott Rudin and, and Dana Brunetti and Mike DeLuca. It's Sony Pictures who did 21. But Aaron Sorkin did the screenplay, and he's you know the West Wing guy, a few good men. I hope that he puts the line in there, you want my status update? You can't handle my status update, but I, I, don't, I don't think he will. But, um, but I think uh, he's a genius, so he's going to do a great job with it, and, uh, and we'll hopefully you know, it's going to be a big movie. I wonder inherently uh, the subject matter. I mean, it's it's a story with fascinating kind of repercussions uh, and sort of philosophical stuff attached to it. But like, um, it 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 seems like it doesn't necessarily have as many like visually dramatic things as twenty. There's like no one getting beat up in the basement of a casino. (laughs) It's like a bunch of kids, you know. you know, a Red Bull and, and coding. How, how's <laughs> well, this going to translate? You know what? The There's a lot of drama in this story. The Winklevoss twins and these two geeky kids, and it's a college kind of coming of age story in a weird setting. There's the hierarchy, but I haven't read the screenplay yet. Um, I know Aaron Sorkin loves law stuff, so I don't know if he's going in that. I don't know what he wrote, um, but uh, 
you know what? I think there's a lot of dramatic arcs. There's lots of intersecting arcs, so you could do a lot with it. I highly doubt there'll be a lot of scenes of people coding. <laughs> but, um, I, I, you know, I avoided those scenes. I've been attacked for avoiding those scenes. Some critics say, why aren't there any more scenes about the code? And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, listen, that's not what I write. I don't know what, what, what Aaron's going to do. I don't know what the movie people will do. You know, 21 was very different than Bringing Down the House as well. Um, I was on set. And I watched the whole thing happen, and I loved it, but uh, I didn't have any power. Uh, the writer is way at the bottom. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, we'll see what they do. Yeah. Do you find that you're writing, uh, that you start second-guessing yourself and start writing more like a screenplay? Right, and then Tom Cruise did this. Right. No, you know, I, I don't. I, I've always written cinematically. I mean, I, I, part of the, every review about me is this is cinematic, and sometimes they mean it negatively. Um, but I'm, I've always seen visually, I think visually, I have a very dramatic uh, uh, way of thinking. Um, so when I sit in my room in, in the dark, I'm actually envisioning all of these scenes. So I've always written kind of this way. And um, what, what an ironic twist that now you are sort of promoting this book about Facebook <laughs> with its own on, Facebook on site, Facebook, right? we have a Facebook page for the book with uh, two thousand fans, and uh, um, yeah, it's very meta. I guess it is. It, it's it's cool. Uh, Facebook is such an amazing tool. Um, I call it the next evolution in, in in humanity. I think it's the next step. We've gone from the the village to the city to Facebook. We all live on Facebook now, especially young people, high school, college people. Four or five hours a day. I mean, Facebook's on all day long, and you, you communicate through it. There's no more email. There's no more phone calls. It's all Facebook. And, uh, and I think that's great. It's, it's an incredible way of bringing us together. And so, of course, we, we put the book on Facebook. And, uh, you know, Mark hasn't thrown me off Facebook yet. <laughs> I, mean, I, thought, I was kind of expecting it. But, uh, no, he, it's all about this free, free world. And I know he's a big proponent of that, of all information, wants to be free. Um, and I think Facebook is, is an incredible tool. And you think it's here to stay? It's the next big quantum leap for us? I get this question all the time, because Twitter, you know, which I, I, I've heard called the Macarena of the Internet, because it's here, and it may not be here tomorrow. <laughs> Twitter's cool, and I, and I love Twitter, but Facebook is huge. I mean, 250 million members and growing 5 million uh, every few days. And uh, it's the newest age group is 40 and above. That's the fastest growing age group in Facebook. And it's international. In the UK, they're obsessed with Facebook. Uh, and you know what? I don't see it going away. They have to make the right moves. You know, they can't make a lot of mistakes. Um, but it's so useful and it's so important in, in so many ways to so many people. A dating goes on through Facebook. You don't meet girls the way I used to try and meet girls in college unsuccessfully, but you, you, you meet everyone you know through Facebook. Um, and uh, you see your old friends. You know, everyone knows. Everyone knows what Facebook is. And it's not MySpace, which is this dirty free-for-all, <laughs> right? It's a scary place where everyone's throwing themselves up. Look at me. Look at my band, you know, and... Uh, it's, it's a communication tool in a way that none of these other sites are. So I, don't, I see it incorporating aspects of Twitter as it already does. And it will incorporate the whole brand selling thing. It will swallow up every new idea as it grows if they make the right moves. And Facebook will have a billion members in a year or two. So see, Facebook should love me. I, I only say good things about Facebook. So you don't think that... Um, Mr. Zuckerberg might be like the, an evil genius <laughs> no. who's about to... Cause the demise of human civilization? <laughs> no, I really don't. I mean, I think what he's done is, is brought us together in an incredible way. You know, he does have at his fingertips an immense amount of information. The amount of information that's on Facebook is staggering. But I really think what they're doing with it is, is, uh, is, is, 
is good. Uh, I think it, you know, there are risks. You have to be careful. Everyone, the problem I see is that the younger people coming up now have a very different view of privacy than you or I or the older generation. I mean, in the, you know, people used to be scared of other people seeing what's going on in their life, but younger people want everyone to see everything. It's this culture of everyone wants to be a celebrity. So young people love the fact that everyone can see their pictures and everyone can get their information and find out where they live and all this kind of stuff. Younger people love spreading that information out, and that's something that's slightly dangerous. I think the ideas of privacy are changing, and that's something we'll, you know, we'll have to adjust to. Um, but, uh, but Facebook's way better than MySpace in that regard. I mean, you can control a much larger degree of what people can see. It's just that younger people don't want to control it. They want everyone to see what they did last night, um, which is a little scary. <laughs> Do you think, one, one more question, I'll turn it over to the audience here, but um, as someone who's not on it, and who sort of witnesses the amount of time... So you're not on wife, it, you're saying? I, I'm not on wow. Facebook. No, I know. it. <laughs> but my wife spends so many hours on it, and I yeah. watch her, and I wonder, do you think it changes what it means to be friends? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are people you're friends with on Facebook that you're not really friends with. <laughs> you know, it's someone you went to high school with who popped up out of nowhere, but you felt too bad to say no to letting them be your friend, <laughs> so you befriend them. It definitely changes that. I've also seen, you'll notice this, that some, sometimes one of my married friends will join up, and his status will be single, and then his wife will join up, and his status changes to married very quickly. And it's like, okay. But, um, yeah, it's changed, it's changed how people are friends pretty dramatically. Um, and it changes your real life, because then you go out somewhere, and you run into someone, and then they're your, fr- they're your friend on Facebook. In reality, you may not really be their friend. And then you can have limited profiles, so they can sort of be your friend, and they can only see a little bit of your life. And it's, uh, you know, it's cool. And then as people's parents go on to Facebook. You have to start changing what's on your Facebook. <laughs> I know a lot of people whose kids won't let them go on Facebook because they're afraid they're going to spy on them and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think it has changed a little bit. Um, and as it grows, it'll become everything. If you're, fr- if you're not friends on Facebook, you won't talk to them in real life. <laughs> well, um, let, let me turn it over to you guys. I'm sure you all probably have uh, questions and thoughts for Ben. Um, and I think I there's can probably, a mic right there. And... I can probably pull this Oh, yeah, look at that. There's a mic right there. Just, um, so if you've got thoughts, uh, questions, um, frustrations. I'll start it. We've got a couple of questions from Facebook, actually. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh interesting. I'll paraphrase some of them. Some of them are kind of like overlapping. Some yeah. of them, um, two questions. What do you think are the top things that surprised you what people do on Facebook? <laughs> and um, from your discussions with Eduardo and the people around Eduardo, what are they doing with their gazillion dollars? Okay, um, the first question, surprise people do on Facebook. Um, I, I find it amazing how much people at work use Facebook. I, I was shocked. I thought it was just a social tool, but a lot of people actually do work on Facebook, and, and their jobs, everyone has it open. A lot of jobs aren't allowing people to use Facebook, but some other jobs are starting to incorporate it more in how they communicate. It's taking away email. People don't email anymore. I, I get half the messages I get, I get through Facebook now, um, which is pretty interesting. And I also am amazed at how often some people update their status. (laughs) I mean, some people, wow, every two seconds, you know, I'm eating a sandwich. I finished my sandwich. That was a great sandwich. (laughs) It's like, whoa. But um, I think that that would be, you know, one of those things. And then how these kids are spending their money. Again, these are kids who don't care about money. 
You know, Mark Zuckerberg is not spending money. You're not going to see him in the yacht running around, you know, or the Ferrari. Eduardo, you know, lives in Boston and New York and is running another company now. Um, I, you know, I, it's not sort of the lavish lifestyles that I wrote about in, 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 uh, in some of my other books. These guys are much more controlled about how they're living their lives. You know, Mark's the youngest billionaire in the world and, and does not... Uh, there's a great story in the book where he was showing up to meetings with venture capitalists and his car that he bought on Craigslist for like $100. And the thing breaks down and one of the VCs buys him an SUV so he can get to his next meeting. Um, these kids don't live, they don't care uh, about, you know, the things, the material things. And it seems their uh, validation really comes from just the sheer sort of self-driven yeah, knowledge I mean, that they figured out the next piece of code or the right. next I mean, that's widget. definitely part of it. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's this belief in, in what they built is the most important thing. Sure. Hi. So uh, what's the business model for Facebook? Uh, how did this guy become so rich? Right. Is there advertising? I've never been on, so well, I don't know anything about it. It's a good question. There is advertising, but really Facebook is not profitable yet. It's on its way, and it's making a lot of money. Uh, they could become profitable overnight if they wanted to. They could charge a dollar a month, and maybe 50 million people would stop using it. But they'd still make $2 billion a year. Um, there is advertising. It's not very obtrusive. It's, it's very kind of limited right now. Um, their value is mainly on paper. Uh, Microsoft bought a piece of the company, and then a Russian oligarch billionaire just put $200 million into it, and that valued it at $6.5 billion. So the value of the company is $6.5 billion. They've cashed out a little bit, but they haven't IPO'd. They haven't gone public. They haven't made their billions yet for real. Um, I don't know what they're actually worth, uh, but you know, Mark supposedly uh, has more than a billion. Uh, if, Two years ago, the site was valued at $15 billion when Microsoft bought into it. Now it's at $6.5 billion. But I actually think it should be worth a lot more. I think in two, three years, it'll be back to $10, $15 billion. But I, I'm not a businessman, so don't buy any stock if you can. <laughs> sure. Um, describe, if you would, the, uh, your assessment of Mark's relationship with the uh, Winklevosses and, and okay. what he took from... Connect you to start. Well, it's a good question, and I'm very careful. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, the case went on for a while. They believed that their company was very similar to Facebook. Mark's argument that it had nothing to do with Facebook. His argument was essentially, you know, there's a chair. People have built chairs for hundreds of years. I made my own chair. You can't sue me because you also made a chair. Um, in the end, he settled for $65 million. So there you go. So they got $65 million that was leaked out by their law firm. They are unhappy with that. They want more. They think that it's not even about the money to them either because they're from a billionaire family. So they don't even care about $65 million. They want people to know that they created Facebook. And they, you know, their claim seems, you know, that's what they believe. And if you read it, there are some reasons that they give that seem very good. You look at Mark's side, and I can understand his side too. I mean, he got very upset at them because he felt like they were taking advantage of him. The reality is I think he wanted to hang out with them because they were these cool jock guys um, who asked for his help. He didn't think much of their site. Um, but you know what? I don't really know. Um, I don't know the answer. And, and there's plenty of sort of documentation even in my book. Um, there are pages from his emails and, and their emails, um, pieces from the court case. Um, but... It's a good question, and one there was one settlement. Uh, they want to reopen the case, as far as I know. So, were, were the 
boss is a source for your story? You know, I, I don't really tell who my sources are. I, I, I'm very careful about that. And I get attacked for that as well. It, it seems perfectly fine for, you know, people at the New York Times to not say who their sources are. But when I don't say who my sources are, people get upset. Um, the only person I've admitted talking to is Eduardo. But there were a lot of other people who I talked to. Um, but, you know, the Winklevoss information is readily available if anybody has Lexis. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing case um, and very intricate. I mean, the idea of what an idea is comes into it. And uh, if, if, you know, if someone sees your idea and then goes and makes something that's similar, there was already Friendster. There was already MySpace. Uh, so none of this was creating something out of thin air. You know, Friendster as crappy as it was, it was very similar to Facebook. Uh, it just had a lot of issues with it. Sure. Hi, can you comment on the um, possibility of future employers checking an applicant's Facebook, Facebook page and yeah. using that as a decision maker and whether they're going to hire the person or not? Well, they do. They do. I've heard from a lot of, of people who who are, you know, hiring at firms that they try and check your Facebook page. They try and check your MySpace page. And, uh, and, and you have to be very careful because you, the other thing is if you have a lot of friends on Facebook, every now and then there's that person who's not really your friend and you think is your friend. I actually had an incident where I friended someone because the name of the kid was the same as someone who was my actual friend, but it wasn't actually him. And then photos appeared on websites and I was like, where are they getting these photos? And I realized they were getting them. This person was not actually the person I thought he was and was taking photos off my website, off of my Facebook site. So you have to be very careful. Employers do look at Facebook. Um, if you let your, friend, your boss be your friend, you're making a big mistake because your boss isn't always your friend. <laughs> I think you have to be very careful about Facebook. People will look. And, and it, it feels like an invasion, but the reality is if you friend someone and they're looking at your photos and they see you drinking or doing something crazy the night before, I have a friend who got in trouble because... Uh, because they, uh, they, told their, they called in sick, it's the old thing, and then they actually were at a beach party, and there's all these photos of the beach party. I have another story, and it's actually another story about how Facebook changes relationship, where this girl was dating this guy, and uh, he, was, he said, you know, I'm going out of town, and then, of course, he put on his Facebook page pictures of him at a party in New York, where they live, and, and she was... Then he had to defriend her and try and date her at the same time, which was tricky. But it, you have to be very careful. Um, people look at your site. It's this whole idea that if you put something out there, it is public. No matter how private you try and make it, it really ends up being public. You know, you mentioned uh, that, this, that question uh, about employers reminded me that I wanted to ask you about... Um, the, the, the potential of Facebook as a political force. I mean, we got some taste of that recently. Oh, yeah. I mean, Obama, Obama used Facebook in a really big way. Is that what you're talking about? Or, or... And also Iran. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was more Twitter. Twitter that was Twitter's moment. I read, uh, I don't know if it was in Time or Newsweek, that said it wasn't that Twitter saved Iran. It was Iran saved Twitter. <laughs> because, uh, you know, everyone was tweeting because it's so simple and it was very hard for them to control. Facebook's a little bit more complex. You didn't see a lot of people... <laughs> going on their Facebook site and navigating through somebody's pictures of their 4th of July party to write something about Iran. But um, uh, yes, the, the, the technology is spectacular and moving very quickly, and there is a big political force behind Facebook. I think Obama used Facebook very well. It's actually interesting to note that Chris Hughes, who's a character in the book, um, was one of the founders of Facebook. He's not really a big character in the book, but he was more the public face for a little while when they were college kids, and then afterwards, he went on and ran the internet uh, sites for the Obama campaign. 
and he was very well versed in that whole world. So it is becoming a political force. I think Twitter and Facebook will become big in things like Iran and, and you know, you can't control it. You can try. China's tried to control it. Iran definitely wants to control it. But in the end, I think it's very hard to control. Sure. Question. Do you think that in time, since so many people are on Facebook, that it can somewhat uh, change the social apparatus in which people operate? Meaning like now, say for the day, instead of me having to call a friend to go to their house, I can just pick up my phone and check their status, they're eating a sandwich, they're doing this, then they learn what right. I'm doing, then they learn what I'm doing, so I'll go see what he's doing. <laughs> so, it, <clears throat> does, like I'm saying, does it, do you think it changes the way people operate and socialize mm-hmm. in general? I mean, I absolutely definitely think so. I think we're all becoming a, you know, we don't talk anymore. Nobody talks. I don't, I don't ever answer my phone. It's all, you know, <laughs> texting or Facebook. Um, I think we're slowly going to become separated um, I, I think we're gregarious, but now we do it through the Internet. And, and you have more friends than you ever did, but you see them much, much less. Um, I absolutely think it's changing the way people live. And I think uh, people, you know, it's weird, but people love to hang out, but they like more to just talk. You know, even when I hang out with people now, they try and text each other in the same room. You'll be at the, a party and everyone's texting each other at the party. Or you'll take a picture and then they'll put it on their Facebook and look at the picture on the Facebook. Yeah, but I'm standing right here. I can actually see you. But you'd rather look at the picture on Facebook than see the person who's standing in front of you. Um, I think that, yeah, it seems to naturally be moving that way. How you live on Facebook becomes more real than your reality. And I think you're going you're gonna to end up like that. I got other, another question from Facebook from Cindy in Highland Town. If I delete my account... This is very, like, MTV, by the way. I, I find this very cool. <laughs> I feel like Larry King here. Yeah. Cindy, you're from Highland Town. You're on. I'm like, okay. If I delete my account, what happens to my personal data on Facebook? Is it 100% deleted from the FB servers? Is it stored? Is it hidden? Uh, well, what first of all, have? this is not necessarily a question for me. <laughs> this is a good engineering question. There was a big uproar because Facebook put out a, a statement that basically said, anything you put on Facebook, we own. Um, they... Everybody, it was an uproar, but the reality was they kind of do. <laughs> you know, anything you put on Facebook, you're putting into their servers, and who knows, and, and they say that that's the, it's theirs, and probably, legally, maybe it is. I'm not a lawyer, um, but uh, uh, I don't know what the... I know that there was a big uproar, and then Facebook pulled back from saying that, but my belief was they pulled back from saying it, but it's still kind of true. Um, so if you put stuff on Facebook 10 years from now, it might appear somewhere. But they claim they delete everything, they don't keep everything, um, but who really knows? Um, you have to be careful, and the law might change too. I don't know what the law is on this, and there might be someone who knows better than me. Um, I don't know the, 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 the more technical aspects of where it is. Sure. To turn away from Facebook for a few minutes, because I'm a anti-Facebook. Okay. Um, I, uh, I really enjoyed um, all the books that I've read so far, and you yeah. mentioned a little earlier about your research, like taping the money or yeah. whatever. How about in... Was it the American Cowboy? The, Ugly Americans. Ugly Americans. Yes, thank you. And um, in Tokyo, did you go to all those underground clubs? I did. I was in. I spent some time in Tokyo. Uh, it takes place. For those of you who don't know, it's a book that takes place in the both business and sex underground of Japan. Um, and uh, as a, as a, a white person, as a guy Jin, you can't get into a lot of sort of the underground stuff that's in Tokyo. But I spent a, a good month in Japan, um, following around these expat bankers who live these wild lifestyles. I mean. They all have matching yellow Ferraris, and they all date multiple 19-year-old girls, and they, they live like rock stars while they were you know, taking down the Japanese stock market. Um, but I did. I spent a long time there. Um, you know, I'm kind of like a fly on the wall. I'm not you know, as participatory as I am 
uh, immersed in it, but kind of in the corner. Because I'm terrified of just about everything in life. And so for me, it was very easy to go there, but then not want to get... I always like to be one step removed from the real action. Um, but I did spend a lot of time there. Yeah. And you had a, a, some run-ins with the Yakuza. I did. I, I actually team. had to speak to some Japanese mobsters. And uh, I remember I, I went into a meeting in Osaka, and, and I get there, and... Uh, this translator uh, says to me, so you're going to talk to this guy, and there's going to be a table of guys behind you, and you are not to look at them. Do not turn around. So I did this whole interview like this, and I, was, I don't even know what I asked. I was thinking the whole time about these huge guys sitting behind me. But um, yeah, I did interview some interesting guys. Uh, that book was scary, and much more scary than writing about Facebook. I actually uh, remember there was one chapter in the original copy of the book about this Chinese billionaire um, and I handed the book to the main character, and I said, what do you think of this chapter? And he said, you have to cut it out. And I was like, why? And he goes, because this guy's notorious for killing journalists. <laughs> it's, like, oh, it's gone, it's gone, chapter gone. So I'd like to much more write about kids like the MIT kids and, and, uh, who are much, <laughs> much safer. Uh, I remember one magazine asked to embed me in Iraq, and I was like, I'm not, <laughs> no, no, you can embed me in the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas, <laughs> but I'm not doing that kind of writing, but, um, yeah, go ahead, sure, all right. Um, I was just wondering, from my experience, Facebook is so much about connection and social, but virtual, mm-hmm. and, I, and the guys sound very disconnected, and I don't know if they see the irony in that, or they have this theory that keyboard confidence, as I call it, is much more prevalent than real people confidence, and so they, if they sort of, if they built it, they would come. Right, right. And if they kind of are aware of that, or if they're just data geeks and information, and we're like, we can build this, and that's cool. Yeah, good question. I mean, there is a, 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 a dramatic irony in the center of the story that the most socially awkward people you'll ever meet created the biggest social network in the world. I, it's a good question what they think about that. I mean, I definitely think they thought they could become rock stars, uh, that they could create this site, and then everyone would love them. Uh, I really think there is an aspect of that. And they might disagree with that, um, but I feel like that's part of it. And, and they are also people who really are focused to a degree that, you know, they can, that world is a real world to them. It's not a virtual world to them at all. Um, much more Mark than Eduardo. Eduardo saw Facebook as a tool to become popular, I think. Um, uh, Mark basically more saw it as this, this incredible thing that he can create. And creating it would make him uh, everyone could see what he could do. I, I think that's a big part of it. But um, yeah, it's good. Uh, it's a good question. And I think, I don't really know what they would say. I think, you know, now they would say it's a business. And that's, but it wasn't when they were sophomores in college. It was a, a way of meeting people and, and for people to meet each other. And that's definitely what, you know, the Winklevoss twins, Harvard Connection was really an idea that we don't meet people easily enough. And, uh, and there would be an easier way if it was on the web. So um, yeah, a tool more than anything else. Another question? Sure, that's great. The one thing I was going to say just now, thinking about this and somebody else's talk, was this movie, I can't remember the name of it, but the guy, it's one of the guys who was in Diner, was in it, which is a Baltimore movie. And it's about people who know each other through the email, and they all were going to have a, a New Year's Eve party. Hmm. They, it was in, they all lived in New York City. And they all got up, dressed up to go to this New Year's Eve party, and every one of them walks past the building. Because they can't meet in person. Oh, no, I never saw that. I guess if you Netflix, like Tim Daly movies, it would come up. But um, first of all, this is a question on your style. Does it bother you? I mean, Aaron Sorkin, it's an honor for him to be your scriptwriter. But, I mean, does it bother you that somebody else is taking your book and... 
<laughs> make something out of it? Um, you know, it doesn't at all. I've always been of the belief that I wrote the book and they're going to make the movie. Uh, if the movie is great, then it's great. And if the movie is bad, everyone says the book was much better than the movie. So I kind of win both ways. Um, but you know what? I, I really am not one of those authors who sits there and gets angry about the casting or something like that. It's just so much fun. The whole thing is very fun. So no. And, 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 and I've, you know, I've, I've run the gamut of all the different types of situations you can have. And uh, my, you know, my first TV movie starred Antonio Sabato Jr., the underwear model, the Calvin Klein guy, who played a surgeon. Um, and uh, uh, there was a great scene. My father is a doctor, and there's a great scene where he's leaning over the patient's chest, and he goes, we've got a subdural hematoma. And my dad was there, and he says, you know that's in the head, right? <laughs> so it, it runs the gamut. I think Aaron Sorkin will do a much better job. <laughs> and uh, and I, I just look forward to it. it it's, it's a really fun process. And the other thing was my... She is my real-life friend, but she's also a Facebook friend, too. And she was reading somewhere um, that there, at University of Georgia, there's a study on social networking and narcissism, oh. which is what but you're calling it something else. But, I mean, is that really... What I mean, listen, that's a great word for it. There, you know, there's definitely the younger generation coming up. There's a, there's a definite level of, of a belief that everyone deserves. They did a, a study on high school kids, I think it was, and then uh, 85% believe they will be famous. Right? So... That's not possible, obviously, right? <laughs> but, but I think that that's what people, everyone growing up, and, I, you know, I, I bet most of us here probably slightly in the back of our mind thought we might be famous one day uh, or wanted to be famous. It's a big part of who we are, I think, to try and be famous. And, and these sites kind of allow you to be famous. In your own world, you can put a picture of yourself up and see how many people looked at it. And, I, and that's, that's what drives the site. The kids I talked to who founded Facebook said one of the, the main driving force was the photos, and that when you put a photo up, it immediately alerted everyone that a photo was up with you in it. So if, 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 if a photo with Ben Mesrick appeared on any of my friends' site, I knew it, so I could go look at the photo of me. I mean, that's kind of the definition of narcissism, but that's what drives Facebook, and you all do it. Whenever a photo appears that you were tagged in, you go and look at it. You know you do. And that right there is sort of, that's what's driving this, this thing. It's this, yeah, inherent narcissism, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we're all built that way, I think, to want to look at ourselves, to think about ourselves. It's very hard to break away from that. Um, but yeah, that's a very good, good point. I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was wondering if you think that Facebook could be just like another fad. You know, like Friendster was really big, and then MySpace, but now they've all been overshadowed. So what if the next new big thing comes along? Do you think it'll ever, it could ever go away? I don't think so. I actually think Facebook is the next big thing. I think it continues to grow. It incorporates everything. I think it's too big, too big to fail. Everyone loves to say that now. But Facebook is huge. And the other thing is, is that they've, it's very clean. It's very smooth. None of, it's the kind of the perfect social network. Um, Someone might come up with something similar and, and it might grow. But I think that if Facebook is smart and they make the right moves, they should continue to get bigger and bigger. So, like, they're here to stay. I okay. feel like they're here to stay. I think Twitter, it will be interesting to see how they make money off of Twitter. <laughs> but uh, I think that yeah. Facebook is something they could easily make money off of. Yeah, but you're also saying, though, that they haven't actually made their money. But well, they've they make, they're making a few hundred million a oh, year. Okay. Uh, they're not making billions a year. But they could. Uh, very simply, I mean, a few more ads, I mean, 250 million people or a dollar a month. Um, and some of us will drop, but we won't all drop. Oh. 100 million people stay on at a dollar a month, and you're making a billion a year. 
Because I've also heard the argument where if they don't make their money now, they may never make it. Yeah, I mean, there is that argument because the economy is so crazy. They could have sold for three years ago for $15 billion. Yeah, exactly. But I'm a believer that Facebook will continue. Uh, and, you know, there are different opinions. Of it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I have two questions. The first one is, it's interesting to hear that the uh, movie is already in progress and yeah. the book is just available. Fast. What do you think is the ideal time between a book release and a movie release? Wow, good question. I mean, I think you want it to coincide with the paperback. Um, but you always release the paperback <laughs> with the movie. It's a good business question. Uh, I think this was incredibly unusual um, that we... Uh, I sold the movie right when I wrote the book proposal. So basically, I sold the movie off the proposal, and then Aaron Sorkin was in Boston, you know, in, in, in a week or whatever, writing the screenplay while I wrote the book. So it's an incredibly unusual situation. Usually, it takes years. Bringing down the house took five years to get the movie made. So um, this is unusual. But you know, I, I think you want the movie as soon as you can have it. Uh, it takes so long for Hollywood to get things going um, that if a movie comes out in a year, it would be fantastic. Question is um, about Facebook. We've been talking about how it really is changing the way that we live, and I think it's also changing the way that people die and mm -hmm. memorials on Facebook and finding out that someone yeah. has died, and even these heartbreaking stories about parents who can't take down their child's site because people right, are posting right. to the wall. Um, have you heard anything from the creators of Facebook on that topic, or could you weigh in a little bit? On oh, you know, I, I, I didn't. I never talked to them about that. Um, I think that's an interesting thing. I mean, I think Facebook is is touching everyone in, in in different ways, and it's part of every part of your life. I think when yeah, that is an incredible. I've heard that story before. I mean, I've definitely seen that story before when when someone you know passes away and they still have a Facebook site and their friends then put up comments and, and, and it's almost like a memorial to them. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I never asked them about that. It wasn't really part of the story, but it's interesting. Huh. Thank you. Oh. Oh. Um, I have a quick question just about the way you, just to back up for a minute, mm -hmm. the way that you were describing how, I'm a Facebook user, but I really try to limit my time because <laughs> it's a real time suck. But just the way that it's changing the social fabric sounds so sad to me. Huh. You know that you're at a party, you take a picture and you post it, and instead of having a conversation, you just post. You know, you're talking to somebody on, you know, either chatting or, or through Facebook. Is that? <laughs> I mean, you can't stop progress. Like we can't stop if that train is going. It's right. out of the station. But is that good? Like, well, are you a luddite? No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> you know what? It, it's. I understand what you're saying, and there's definitely things that are negative about it. It's true. It's, it's kind of sad that people are much more interested in what's online than what's happening right in front of them. But I don't think you can stop it. I think that's the direction we're going. I think where everything has to be online or it doesn't, doesn't, didn't really happen. Um, so um, it's, it's a change. It's going to change, and it's going to continue to change, especially now that video is becoming so much more easy to, you know, the bandwidth and all those issues are being solved. Pretty soon it's all going to be video and not just pictures. And then, really, we're all going to live in our homes in our little, like, sleeper or whatever. We're going to be in our little rooms with our video going, and we're never going to meet each other or talk to each other. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely the direction we're going. And there is something sad, but I don't think you can resist. You're trying, but I think that sooner or later you will go on Facebook and you will be on Facebook. You're on. You just don't. Yeah. <laughs> See? There you go. It's hard, to, it's hard to resist. You'll one day be forced because, you know, NPR will start being on Facebook, right? Our radio station has a Facebook page. I, there so you go. I <laughs> so, yeah. And eventually, you know, it'll, it's, it's, it's what's happening next. NPR is great. Oh, there you go. See? Great stories all time. I'll take your word for it. Thousands of people comment or like it. See? It's the future. 
And do you read the comments? I mean, who, who cares, right? What, that's, that's my question. You do? Right. Not that I read that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but it's, it's, great. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great thing in the newsfeed. I think it's one of my favorite things that I have. On That's cool. Right. There you go. Better than like what your two-year-old age grew up today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, can I ask a one question? More? Well, yeah, one more question. Okay, thanks. I, um, I was in New York last weekend, and I was out at a bar, and, you know, I have Facebook, I don't have Twitter, and I've got my little iPhone, so I've got my apps, and I'm, I try to be connected and hip. I don't have the 3GS, I have the 3G. <laughs> but I'm, I was at this, um, this bar, and I was talking to this guy, and he's like, I was like, oh, can I, you know, can I call you or text you or email you? Because I thought that was enough. He's like, you don't have bump? Right. Is that the next thing, bump? Yeah, bump is where, of course. <laughs> but what it leads me to believe, bump is, uh, this free promotion for bump, but bump is basically like if somebody has an iPhone and you have an iPhone, all you got to do is bump them oh, physically. Nice. Right, well, I, yeah. And it, can, it automatically loads all your, up. Your information goes back and forth. Your That's photos, cool. your yeah. address, your wow. email, and you just have to bump. And, and when I said, I said, no, I don't have bump, he's like, oh. And I saw, these, I saw all these people, like, in this, like, fancy nightclub all doing the... <laughs> Bumping there. And I said, well, should I download these? I know it takes too long. And what that leads me, like, I'm on some networking sites, but I, and I, and I, and especially, like, younger people, like you say, when they text me, all of it seems, I mean, I like it with my friends, who I've known for, like, 28 years or whatever, but... So many of the conversations I have in that that format, you know, they're all like seven words. Yeah, it's different. And it and it, it doesn't. That's what I'm wondering about. I mean, I'm wondering is society. Do you think it's going to get to a point where people are just going to be like? Because I mean, what you do when you write a book, you write thousands and thousands and thousands of words. But sometimes when I do all this texting and stuff, it all seems like like I'll go online and I'll go to one of the sites I belong to. I'm like, oh, geez, it's the same damn thing again. Yeah, and right. I don't even want to respond to it because it's like, yeah, how are you doing? I'm fine. Happy face. Yeah. <laughs> Happy face. LOL. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it just, there's, there's an element it's of It's definitely changing how people talk. I mean, there's a like Twitter book coming out, or there was one on the web where they wrote on Twitter all in 141 characters. And, uh, right. I, I mean, it, it, it is. It's definitely different. I mean, people, you know, you text differently than you talk. Um, uh, and uh, it's definitely a big change, I think. Um, this bump thing sounds interesting, although I think people are going to start passing viruses by bump, and then it's going to... I don't know. It's very strange. But... Um, I do remember when my mom started to text, uh, her texts are always so formal. <laughs> so it's like everyone's got to get used to the, the new format. And I, think, uh, I do think that people are starting, I think comments are, are a big, huge negative uh, news articles. I was reading an article about that, but I truly believe the New York Times will write some article and then the comments will be on an eighth grade reading level. And, and, but everyone reads the comments, so it kind of changes your perception of that great article because four guys from wherever said this this sucks. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the comments are a problem because they're anonymous and they become equal to whatever was written. Um, and that's a big problem. The whole blogosphere is a huge problem. I, I enjoy it. We all love reading these blogs, but who knows who's writing them? And then the comments, you know, nobody necessarily has any background. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I agree. I think that the culture changes with this stuff. But you can't fight it. You have to try and figure out a way to make it better. 
Um, and, uh, and, and I think yeah, Twitter is a big issue in that department because it's changing everyone to be able to write everything in one little sentence. Right. You've got to learn how to write Twitter. And, uh, sort of yeah. It just feels like, okay, everything is five words. Yeah. But on the plus side, we have such a massive amount of information available to us now, which, you know, 10 years ago, you would never be able to do this. You can look on Twitter and see a million things you could never have thought, think of. So it's a mix. It's a mix. It's a plus and a negative. Okay. All right, one more, one more. We'll do one more. We're, we're, yeah. This is more of a comment than a question. I am, I will admit it publicly, I am technologically challenged, but it seems to me that the two main people in your book who started Facebook because they were socially inept, mm -hmm. that by creating Facebook, we've come full circle and we are going to have a society that is socially inept. <laughs> I, you know, I have I have conversations <laughs> with point. my college age son saying that the art of conversation is dying <laughs> because no matter how many smiley faces you put into a message, you cannot communicate emotion yeah. in a text or email, whatever. Right. I mean, I think you're here, absolutely. Here. I think you hit it. I mean, I think you're definitely right. I think there's something to that, but. Um, yeah, it's a good. On that note, I think uh, the, the Luddites are <laughs> the Luddites has are begun. revolving, right? But uh, listen, I want to thank you all so much. Uh, it's wonderful being here in Baltimore. I love this city. My parents love it, and uh, I'm here all the time. And, and it's it's wonderful library. So thank you all very much. Ben Mesrick. Uh, ben Mesrick will be signing books right outside the humanities department. So we'll see you out there. Me too.